Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. For those of you who joined me for the first hour, for those of you just joining us, you know, we do a whole hour before this, so you should, you know, get up an hour earlier. There you go. I don't know. Okay, so tomorrow is 9-11, and there's not a lot of talk about it this year because we're in the midst of COVID, and there's so much other chaos going on. But it occurs to me that today's a good day to talk about tomorrow because... Tomorrow, if you talk about 9-11, really all you can talk about is what happened. On the 10th of September, you can talk about a day you didn't expect. You can talk about how the world changed forever in a moment. You can talk about expecting always the unexpected. From, and positively and negatively. Expecting always the unexpected Uh, knowing that with God all things are possible, and expecting the unexpected, knowing that even when the most horrific things happen, God is still God, and God is still good, um, and he's going to redeem. And what other people mean for evil, God will find a way um, to conform ultimately to his will, which is that more and more people would come to know his grace in Jesus Christ. So when you think about the 10th of September, 2001. Can you think about the 10th of September, 2001? I can, because I was responsible for a community-wide fundraiser um, on the evening of the 10th of September. So I know exactly what I was doing on September the 10th, 2001. I also know what I had planned to be doing on September 11th, which was um, all the cleanup, all the follow-up, all the distribution of the silent auction items, blah, 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 blah. Okay, obviously my September 11th and yours and everybody else's did not turn out to be what we expected. Would I have lived September the 10th differently had I anticipated that September 11th would have been what it ultimately was? And the reason I ask that question today is you have an opportunity to consider how you're going to live this day. You and I both, we have an opportunity right now to consider how we're going to live this day where we're going to invest our time, which nudges of the Holy Spirit we're going to respond to and which we're going to suppress, what things on our calendar we're going to you know, defer to later, um, who we're going to call, how we're going to treat people, what questions we're going to pursue, um, how we're going to invest the time, the energy, the talent, the relationships, the opportunities that God sets before us. We have an opportunity today Because really, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We just don't. And on September the 10th, 2001, if I had said all of those things, you still would not have been able to anticipate what happened the morning after. And so I just want to encourage us today. Because there are some days that change everything. 
There are some events that change everything. And for the people whose lives were directly impacted by the events of September 11th, 2001, those families who lost family members, those people who lost uh, their place of work, those people who um, could no longer return to New York, um, or the people who could no longer return to the Pentagon, the people in Pennsylvania, where a field still remains today as a monument to those brave Americans who crashed the plane they were on intentionally to keep the White House from being targeted. Your life can change in an instant. And the lives of everyone whose life your, your life touches is also changed in that same instance. So let's today lead lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called in Jesus Christ because we have no idea what's happening tomorrow. Peter Kapsner is waiting in the wings right now, and we'll be right back. Dr. Peter Kapsner is joining me again today. Peter, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Carmen. Great to be in studio here with Paul and hanging out with you. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about um, all of the expectations that every uh, every kid who um, spent their their childhood, certainly their adolescence, and maybe their college years playing basketball or football, and the very few number of them who then broke into the NBA and the NFL – um, and what this year then has been like, um, because it's, you know, it, it is not what anybody expected. But bring us up to speed on um, on some sports-related news uh, in the NBA and the NFL. Yeah, it, boy, you just referenced the idea of how many people actually make it to that level, right? It's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of the people who actually get started playing in a sport. And some of the more interesting things I think to watch as the NFL season sort of kicks off. I mean, obviously you have the whole storyline of empty stadiums still and what does it mean? I don't know, but doesn't everybody want to move to Kansas? I mean, right. Right. <laughs> You're like, it's, a, it's apparently like the one place that we could live where yeah. you could go to a game. Well, that's exactly right. I was talking with uh, somebody that was, that was uh, in Tennessee, actually in your neck of the woods, and they were going to a high school football game with about 5,000 people and just that sense of normalcy. <laughs> right. But, uh, but, but generally speaking, obviously we're, we're dealing with the pandemic, but the other side of it, I think that's going to be really worth watching is that as professional sports have started up in various forms over these last maybe three months or so, is you see that the PGA, the Golf Association, really has, in the absence of fans, they've really seen an increase in their ratings. And Major League Baseball, in sort of this crazy sprint season that is 60 games instead of their 162 games, they're also experiencing quite a bit of uh, increase in their ratings. Same with NASCAR. So you just think people are starved, right, for sports. It was gone for too long in people's psyche and their consciousness, at least was the thinking. And so it would be with the NBA, where it's not just that it restarted, but it restarted in the playoffs, which historically get these gigantic ratings. The NBA has really been pushing the NFL as the most popular global sport. So you would expect their ratings to be absolutely off the hook. 
And yet, as they have been uh, watching this over the past probably month or so, they've seen that the ratings have absolutely cratered. They, they have gone down by 40% over the last two years, by about 23%, I think, was the number year over year. Even though the games are entertaining, even though all the quote-unquote right teams are in the playoffs and the right superstars. And, the, and Harris, which is really among the different poll organizations, Harris historically has been seen as a trusted poll organization, and they polled people and asked them as to why. And it, it's interesting to see that the reason why people uh, tend to be turned off by the NBA is because they also were the one professional sports platform that really went all in and becoming a political platform as well. You can agree or disagree with uh, President Trump or Black Lives Matter or these different political platforms. That's not the point of what you and I are talking about this morning. The point is, is that it's pretty clear people don't want to be mixing politics with sports. They just want to be able to watch the sports. And I, I watched an NBA game the other night, and, and even me as an NBA junkie over all these years, there was a player for the Miami Heat, and he was playing so exceptionally well at a critical time in Game 7, and I couldn't get his name. I didn't know who it was as a rookie uh, because all of the NBA players have different sort of slogans and and, uh, and and words in their jerseys that don't represent their name. And and so it was hard for me even to follow, even though I, I feel like I'm a pretty moderate, independent-minded person. And so a couple other pieces of that, uh, the NBA really took a lot of heat because uh, they were incredibly silent by contrast on matters in China. And, and, and China is about a billion-dollar enterprise for the NBA. And when there was such uh, egregious social rights violations going on between China and Hong Kong, at one point, the general manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey is his name, he tweeted out basically his support for the people of Hong Kong, and China completely cut off the NBA. And, and it cut off all of this revenue stream for the NBA. And so people are thinking, gosh, the NBA is a little bit uh, filled with hypocrisy. And, and they will support certain social justice causes as long as it, uh, it, it fills their coffers. But other ones they're going to stay silent on. And so there's quite a bit of interesting reaction going on, all of which brings us to the NFL that's kicking off tonight, where Colin Kaepernick, if people that are listening in, uh, at least have heard that name in passing, he was the quarterback who started the kneeling for the national anthem uh, several years ago in protest of police brutality. This is sort of the origin of the social protest movements in professional sports. And uh, and so it's going to be really interesting and worth bearing watching to see how the NFL deals with this uh, over the next couple of weeks. Will they take the posture of the NBA and this sub- uh, subsequently maybe lose their gigantic revenue stream, or will they stay more silent? And boy, you know, people, I think, Carmen, at the end of the day, they don't like hypocrisy, right? Whether it's Jerry Falwell hmm. Jr., whether it's uh, professional athletes picking and choosing the causes that they want to stand up for, I-, I think people are just weary of all of this, and they can kind of sniff out that, hmm, this doesn't all seem to be on the up and up. At the end of the day, money is probably going to win the day versus the cause. Yeah, you mean the the financial bottom line of the franchise, right? Of course, or the uh, or the yeah. Or the league. All right. Hey, we got to take a very brief break. Um, when we come back, I want to I want to talk with you about, um, you know, I, I want to figure out a way to talk about uh, a very high profile Christian who announced that um, she has filed for divorce. But I want to do so in a way that doesn't make it sound like we're gossiping on air about right. the troubles in someone else's house. Right. So I think let's talk about um, it in general terms. Um, and I think we should talk about this uh, in terms of why this should matter to us as Christian women and Christian men um, in the marketplace of ideas today in America, where I guess divorce has become, you know, kind of routine for a lot of people, but it ought never be seen as that uh, among Christians. So that conversation up next with Peter Kapsner. We'll be right back. Oh, 
Jen Hatmaker is a wildly popular author. Her family is actually featured in a in a TV reality series, um, and she has announced, um, I think, on Instagram. Yep. I can't really remember exactly where the announcement came. Um, that uh, she says, uh, "Here's her Instagram post. I don't know how to say this, and I still cannot believe it. I am saying it, but Brandon and I are getting divorced." She goes on to say, you know, the details are ours alone. This was completely unexpected, and I remain stunned as we speak. I am shocked, grief-stricken, and heartbroken. You know, she she then goes on, you know, to ask for whatever kind of uh, peace people can give them as they work through this. And anyone who has gone through a divorce personally or with anyone whom they love in their in their family or in their friend group um, recognizes just how awful— Whatever they're going through, just how awful the experience of divorce is. And so we want to um, deal with this today because it is headline news. But we want to do so in a way that absolutely does not um, make it sound as if we are gossiping about the hat makers because that's not what we're doing. So, um, Peter, let's talk about the reality and the devastation of divorce. And then let's talk about how we can support marriage. Yeah, I, I, and I appreciate the fact that you said that about the gossip part of it, and it, because she was uh, quite silent about the details, and, and I can appreciate that as well. And, and people will tend to get caught up in sort of the sensationalism of it as opposed to what you're inviting us into, which is really to reflect upon and wonder about uh, marriage and divorce and, and, and the impact these things have. And one of the things that comes to my mind is as a person who has officiated over a lot of weddings over the years, and I know I'm a bit of a, an emotional, sentimental sap, but uh, but even as I uh, officiate over a wedding, as as the husband and the wife come to the point of the ceremony, that really is this breathtaking part of the ceremony where they turn away maybe from me, who's giving some sort of homily or whatever it is, and they turn towards one another, and they grab each other's hands, and, and they begin to say these sacred words, these vows to one another. And, and in the saying of the vows, at least in uh, Old Testament Hebrew Jewish uh, thinking, when you said stuff, you actually affected something. They, you brought something uh, into being that otherwise didn't, uh, wasn't in being before. It, it's the idea of the tongue has the capacity to actually bless and to curse. And so when you say words, they matter. And especially when you say vows in front of God and a congregation and an officiant, uh, those words really matter. They indicate something. And Matthew 19 is pretty clear that in those those moments, what God winds together or what God brings together, don't you dare try to rend apart. And and, and to divorce just is, is the Latin word to rend from, this, this beautiful one flesh covenant that's formed when the husband and the wife say these vows to one another about, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We are going to walk out this journey together. We're going to shine. God. Whatever the vow is, it matters. And you can kind of sense, at least I, I felt like I could as an officiant so many different times of the veil between heaven and earth becoming really thin up there on the altar and, and God really winding these two together, right? So, so there is a one flesh covenant that has now been brought into being that becomes so profound when then they turn back towards the congregation and the officiant will say something like, for the first time I now present, you know, Mr. Mrs. Whatever. And, and this is a new union that's in play that is meant to shine God's light in the world together. And I think that's why when we don't understand what God was up to in the covenant, we might miss out on how painful divorce is. And, and I think many of our listeners understand the pain of divorce 
but sometimes it's confusing as to why it's so painful, right? I mean, well, they had irreconcilable differences or this event happened and people got, or we just grew apart or we fell out of love or some of the language that we tend to use about divorce. And we, and we don't understand that the very fabric of a one flesh union has been rent apart at this point. And, and there's just pieces and carnage laying all over the place, regardless of the circumstances of divorce. Uh, there, there is the, the carnage that results. And I remember I was sitting with a good friend of mine one night, the, the day that he got his divorce papers finalized with the county here in Minnesota at that point. And he said, gosh, you know what? I know I just got notification that the divorce was finalized, but it doesn't feel done. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that did, those words just haunted me. And we talked about that a little bit, that even as I'm doing weddings, I will say, yes, by the power vested me in the state of Minnesota, but I'm mindful, Carmen, that Minnesota has no capacity in and of itself to bring about the one flesh union. You're going to get a tax benefit for filing with the county, but you're not going to, Minnesota, <laughs> as much as I love our state, isn't going to be able to inaugurate that beautiful covenant. And so why do we think that Minnesota has the power to help rend the covenant? And I think people are just, they're flattened by the divorce and they don't understand why. Well, it's done. Well, I'm not saying that you're living in multiple relationships, but I think there's got to be a lot of work between um, husband and wife and God in the kingdom and the community if there really is going to be this kind of separation. Why why do we think we can just rend something apart that God has brought together? We probably need to think more critically about how to move back towards wholeness in the case of divorce. That's something more than just filing with the state. Peter, I think there's a lot of people who um, misunderstand marriage, and I'm not sure that those of us who are um, professional Christians, let's say, I mean, we're, <laughs> right. you know, we're, we're Christians, but we're also in professions where our um, our faith is uh, is part of what we are um, doing in front of other people. Um, I'm not sure that those of us who are professional Christians. Um, have always celebrated the goodness of marriage and the goodness of God's design so that people understand that it it is good. It is very good um, to be married and it is, uh, and a marriage can be um, a a witness, a beautiful witness to the coming reality of, uh, of the kingdom and when it is not, when Christians are in a marriage that is not a living demonstration of, uh, of that future reality, we're, we're actually bearing false witness. Agreed. And, and uh, to, to the point, it's interesting because I've had this, and I really do, I don't use this word flippantly, I, I really have felt like I've had a sacred opportunity these last probably uh, 12 years or so to teach about sexuality, gender, and marriage among young people and just literally dozens, hundreds, even thousands of young people coming through these classes. And Carmen, when we actually dig into the beauty, wonder, possibility, and power of marriage that you just described, you can you can actually see these young people come to life in some ways. And they're like, oh my gosh, marriage is more than just about me trying to find a compatible partner to enjoy a lifetime of romance and adventure. There's something bigger involved, like I'm actually participating in a bigger story than myself. And and once you start digging into those beautiful invitations, even from Genesis 2 about the, the man shall now leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they will become one flesh. And, and you get underneath the surface of what that invitation is and what's all there. Their, their hearts really do come to life. And, and you can see them saying, I want to participate in something like that, something bigger, something that you just described that reflects the coming and, and uh, the, the present and future kingdom, all of these kinds of things. That's a really powerful opportunity. And... and 
just going back to divorce for just a second, I want to be really clear. Because we live in a kingdom where that, t- where that tomb is empty, there is always future and there is always hope. Even death itself has been beaten. Sin has been conquered. Even in walking through the pain and horror of divorce, the, the, the possibility of redemption exists in that. And so we need to both uh, affirm the marriage and, and talk about its power more clearly, I think, as you just described. And we also need to help people back towards wholeness that are walking through the pain of that rending. Absolutely. All right, uh, Peter and I want to be sensitive to the reality that you are walking in today, and so know that our prayers are with you, and um, and we acknowledge the pain uh, of this conversation. So let's treat one another with gentleness, kindness, and mercy today. All right, we got to take a very brief break for break point, and then we'll be right back. Are you a church leader and are you wondering how to uh, maybe use this COVID season to assess and evaluate and prepare for a future filled with hope for your church? Well, Tom Rayner from Church Answers is going to be with me to discuss the post-quarantine church, six urgent challenges and opportunities that will determine the future of your congregation. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to trouble. This is Max Lucado. Remember Jesus' parable about the two builders who each built a house, one built on cheap, easy-to-access sand, the other built on costly, difficult-to-reach rock. The second construction project demanded more time and expense, but when the spring rains turned the creek into a gully washer, Guess which builder enjoyed a blessing and which experienced trouble. According to Jesus, the wise builder is whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. The difference between the two was not knowledge and ignorance, but obedience and disobedience. Security comes when we put God's precepts into practice. We're only as strong as our obedience. Rainer is the founder and CEO of Church Answers. You may well recognize him as the former president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources. He has also served on the faculty at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, his credentials go on and on. He has written more than 30 books, my favorite of which um, was I Am a Church Member. And he's joining us today to talk about his latest book, The Post-Quarantine Church, which is trending right now on Amazon as the number one uh, title in the area of church leadership. Tom Rayner, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I, um, I'm tempted to, um, to grumble to you as a member <laughs> of a church, and I would grumble and I would say, um, we don't like it out here in the wilderness, and we want to go back to the place from which we came. And then you're going to tell me we can't go back. And so you're going to help me understand as a church member that we need to go forward. Oh, you gave yourself a great biblical position. So you're, you're going to be the grumbling Israelites <laughs> in the wilderness saying, let's right. go back to Egypt where we were okay. Yeah, it's, it's a great metaphor, Carmen, and it's, it's really an understandable feeling. 
I'm that way, too. I, quite, quite frankly, I would like to go back to the good old days, and I would like to go back to way, the way culture and church-wise 10, 15, 20 years ago because it was easier on me. But I don't think Christ asked me to have an easy life. He asked me to have an obedient life. And what we are headed toward, many people want to call it a new normal because they want to hold on to that word normal and just put an adjective in front of it. But no, it's another reality. And the world that we are entering is, is, is going to be a world where church is more difficult, but a lot of other things are too. And we can either embrace the world that God has put us in and go into his new promised land, or we can grumble. And those are the two choices we have before us. Probably not the option of going back to Egypt. So one of the conversations that I've had with um, members of my own little community group from our church, because obviously we're not going back to meeting together yet, um, I don't know that we as a group will ever go back to meeting together because the groups may, you know, may change. None of us are going back to business as usual. We're not going back to school as usual. Why do a persistent percentage of Christians think we're going to go back to church as usual? Church has been that one area of life that we have perceived to be constant and consistent, and there's reasons for that. The doctrines of the church are unchangeable, or the doctrines of Scripture are unchangeable. Uh, the fact that we worship a living God on a regular basis is unchangeable. So we go into the church, the local, the little C church, and we say, okay, this is my constant. This is what I can hold on to. This is, this is something, even though the world is changing around me, everything's going to be okay here. But the reality of it is, yes, why those non-negotiables do not change, the world and the wilderness that God puts us in is changing, and he does not expect us to deny where we are. He expects us to embrace where we are, and we're to embrace it with the gospel. So when a church member comes up to me, and by the way, thanks for the kind words on I am a church member, when the church member comes up to me and, and says, I just, I, I really want our church to stay the same. My response is, that which matters will, but that world in which we're ministering to will not. And we can move forward or we can grumble, either one of those two. So, Tom, um, let's talk about this moment. Um, church leaders have, I mean, genuinely an unprecedented opportunity to evaluate what they have done in the past, what they are now not doing um, because of the quarantine. And there's a bit of a blank slate kind of moment. Talk about taking advantage in all the appropriate ways, taking advantage of a blank slate moment. There, there's a checklist that I could almost go through. I don't have a checklist in front of me. I'm using it as a metaphor. But there, there's so many things. Let's take one thing, for example. How active and busy is our church, or was it pre-corona. How, how, how many things did we do if we eliminated a certain percentage of them, no one would hardly know the difference. In other words, busyness became a priority instead of doing the business of God. So one of the things that we should be doing in a blank slate is we should be looking at, okay, what have we been expecting of our members? What have we been expecting of those who participate in our church life? And is it making a difference? Is it really making Great Commission disciples? If not, this blank slate gives us an opportunity to eliminate them and to adjust and do things not only differently, but simpler. 
Here's another thing that has taken place, and I could just continue to go down this list. Conversion growth in churches has been dwindling, especially in North America, for about a half a century. It's, it's been so gradual, we haven't noticed it that much. But stated simply, obedience to the Great Commission, reaching people with the gospel of Christ, has waned. This is an opportunity for a wake-up call to realize that cultural Christianity is dead We're not going to be reaching those people who just came to our church because they thought it was culturally acceptable whether they were a believer or not. This is a time to reignite our evangelism. And then I'll do one more very quickly, and then we we could keep on going, but for, for brevity's sake. The third one is this. What was the priority of the early church as they began? They gathered in a room, and they prayed. What happened after Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost? What happened? Going to Acts 2, 42 and following, they devoted themselves to a lot of things, but the end of Acts 2, 42 says, and they devoted themselves to prayer. This is a time for the blank slate church to say, have we really been a praying church? Not just individually, but as a church together, as a church corporately. You look at those three things alone, activities, evangelism, and prayer, you get your focus right. You get your your method right, which is evangelism, and you get your heart right. And the blank slate can be an incredible opportunity for the church. Something get us really excited instead of down that church is not the way it used to be. I'm talking with Tom Rayner. We're talking about the reality of the post-quarantine church. We're also, also talking about the book by the same title, The Post-Quarantine Church, Six Urgent Challenges and Opportunities That Will Determine the future of your congregation. Tom, let's take a very brief break. And when we come back, um, uh, let's talk about the the wide open door that now exists um, for what we might describe as digital church and whether or not you think that sort of the, the move online is in some ways permanent and how that affects both the congregation as well as the congregant. So those conversations up next here on Mornings with Carmen. No Continuing my conversation with Tom Rayner from Church Answers. We are talking about his new book, The Post-Quarantine Church. Um, Tom, talk with us about the wide open door that's now available, you know, in sort of doing this digitally. One of the great results of a tragedy, and this particular tragedy, without making light of the horrendous cost that has been to life and to business and to culture and to the world. But one of the tremendous things that has happened is a heavy number of church leaders. And though I don't have the data, I would say anecdotally, a vast majority of church leaders and subsequently church members have said, you know what? This digital world is an opportunity. And here's, here, here is the philosophical or mindset transition that has taken place. Prior to COVID, most churches, members, and leaders would say that the digital world is a tool. The mindset that has changed now in the post-quarantine world is that the digital world is a mission field. And that has been, if anything, the biggest uh, aha moment during this entire crisis. Now, how did it happen? Obviously, 
a number of churches discovered streaming worship services, digital worship services. Um, many of them, more than not, uh, did not have digital streaming services. And so you went online and you were able to, to reach a number of people that you could not reach otherwise. Some churches got pretty excited about that. Now, to be fair, those numbers have declined since the initial excitement, but they're still there. And there's, there's still that opportunity to, to reach people. Think about your small group, Carmen, you, your, your community group. You're meeting digitally. So is mine right now. I have a group that's called the 833 Community Group, which was reflective of the time we used to meet. And, and our, our group has been on Zoom from the moment of, of the quarantine going forward. Think about how digital has kept us together, and if there had not been a digital world, then it would not have happened. Now, let's, let's look at the opportunities to reach people. They're still going to be digital only, and churches must, must begin to have a prayerful strategy to reach the digital only, those who are not in person. Then there's going to be a group called the Digital Transitioning. They're, they're primarily digital, but they're, they're open to coming to an in-person gathered service. And then they're the dual citizens. Nobody's going to be non-digital these days. I mean, even my 84-year-old mother-in-law is on Facebook, so nobody's going to be non-digital. But they're, they're the dual citizens that are in both worlds. Those are our mission fields now. And when I hear the word, the phrase mission field, I hear opportunity rather than problems. And so this whole digital world has just opened our eyes to, to all kind of possibilities. And uh, here, here's just another little aside. The early thing that I worked with church leaders on was digital giving. And, and they were passing the plate, and that was their primary form of giving. And, and again, most churches under 200 in attendance, and that was common there. Now, even their senior adults know that they can give online and they can set up for recurring giving online. And so all of those things happened as we were awakened to a reality that was already there, but just took a new posture and said, look, we have opportunities. And above all, we have a mission field that means people to reach with the gospel. Tom Rayner's got great stuff um, in the post-quarantine church, an opportunity for you and your church leadership team to rethink your facilities for emerging opportunities, um, how to make the lasting changes that will actually make a difference. We've talked some about uh, taking prayer to uh, a new, next powerful level. Um, Tom, let's talk a little bit about reconnecting with community, because the opportunities to serve our communities have changed and we're in unique positions um, to do it differently than maybe we've ever done it before. There's an irony that is present in this post-quarantine world. And the irony is, for many churches, we discovered our community when we weren't allowed or able to meet with them in person. And what happened was the, 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 the community saw us online and they responded to us. A great number of them responded to us. They responded when we began asking for prayers, or where, how can we help you prayerfully? They began responding by going to digital worship services. So the community discovered us. And one of the things that I did not expect, and I don't know if it's common for all of those who are listening right now, but in many communities, because of the quarantine, there were people out walking in the neighborhoods, social distancing, of course, and they actually got to know their neighbors better. And I have seen a number of churches now that feel like they have a stronger connection to their community, which is a greater opportunity to reach this community. That's why I am urging church leaders, church members, 
hey, don't abandon what you started in the digital world because, hey, do you remember you were reaching the community through this? And one thing that is not going to change in a, in a post-quarantine era, those people are still going to be there, and they still need Christ. They still need the gospel, and they still need the local church. And so I see great opportunities for community. Now, it sounds like I'm the eternal optimist and that everything's going to be fine, I realize the struggles. And I realize that attendance is not going to recover in most churches like it did pre-COVID. And I understand those type of things are, are struggling. I understand that many church leaders are dealing with political infighting, mask or no mask, uh, gather or not gather, what kind of distance to have. I understand all those issues. Those are realities. But in the midst of all of these challenges, Churches have incredible opportunities. It is a blank slate, and I'm just, if, if, if you can tell, Carmen, I'm kind of excited about churches leading forth in a new era that hope God will give us a, an awakening and a revival as a result. Well, I'm with you in that. I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, and uh, I'm also an optimist about things, you know, in the here and now. Um, let's, uh, let's have a, a very brief, sober conversation about the reality that there will be fairly significant numbers of churches that will recognize at this point that it's time to die. And that's not the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. Well, first of all, you you nailed it. Uh, churches were dying anyway. There's always been a normal attrition of, of uh, churches that close their doors and then churches that have started. And no one knows for sure the exact number, but our estimates were pre-COVID, it was six to 8,000 a year of the 350,000 uh, churches in America. And as we go out of COVID, that number is likely to double, and those churches could close within 12 to 18 months. Understand this, this the, the church, the capital C church will prevail. The, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But local churches do have cycles. And it may be time to ask this question. If you're a church that has dwindled down and just cannot sustain itself, can our facilities be used by another church? Can our facilities be used to help a new church start? Uh, can we become a, maybe a site of an existing church that is healthy? I, I would not look at my church that is dying and say that there is no opportunity for her future. But the opportunity may be a sacrificial future where you're willing to say, it's time, and there are a number of places that you can contact. Sometimes you can just find people locally within your community and ask the question, what's a way to keep this physical facility as a gospel presence in our neighborhood, in our community, even if the church dies? Again, in the midst of everything, even closing churches, which is a sobering reality, I do see some hope on the other side, and I believe that many, many churches will see that. We we just walked through with, uh, gosh, 50 churches, uh, obviously digitally, we at Church Answers, who are considering this, and we are guiding them mm-hmm. in that process because they need to know. Absolutely. Um, Tom just mentioned Church Answers. You can find Church Answers at churchanswers.com, literally, if you've got church questions. They've got church answers. Uh, Tom Rayner, thank you so much. The book is The Post-Quarantine Church. We really, we appreciate what you do every single day. And we appreciate you joining us this morning on Mornings with Carmen. My honor. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll be right back.
Hey, thanks for all of your um, interaction today on the text line. Just remember, that's a great way to communicate uh, during the show, 877-933-2484. After the show, you can communicate with me via email, carmen at myfaithradio.com. You can always grab today's podcast and share it with someone new. Paul will very faithfully post it a little bit later at myfaithradio.com. You just look at the Mornings with Carmen page or the podcast page. It's available both ways. Hey, I'm praying for you today. Be praying for me as well. We're all facing challenges that we didn't expect, but let us be people who expect always the unexpected and anticipate miracles, trusting that with God, all things are possible. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.